and I survive the sales, sir. I survive the pits of fish and take some home to Lizer. Good afternoon. It's the second Tuesday of the month, 4 p.m. That's the ETA for Boat Talk here on listener-supported, commercial-free community radio, WERU-FM Blue Hill and WERU.org. The Boat Talk guys are John Johansson, Mike Joyce, and Alan Sprague. We put together a shipload of nautical information for you most every month, and this month we start off with some sad information. Ralph Stanley, Southwest Harbor boat builder and more, died last week. And we'll start off the show with a little talk that John and I had about Ralph. I probably met Ralph back in the mid-1980s. When I was working for the Bangor Daily News, or I had just started Maine Coastal News, I had gone to the Hinckley Company, and I was quickly told that if I wanted to know anything, you had to go across the harbor and talk to Ralph Stanley. (laughs) And I think it was because he knew so much about anything in the boat world. You know, he knew about fishing. He knew about everything that went on on the island. And the more you got to know him, you could figure out why. He spent hours and hours and hours in the libraries, you know, going through old newspapers, you know, either in Ellsworth or Bar Harbor. Uh, he talked to all of the old timers. He paid, he paid attention, you know. And that book he wrote, what, three or four years ago, but they finally put it in hardbound last year. You know, the Stanleys of Cranberry Isle. Right. That's an incredible book. You know, he liked the dirt. (laughs) You know, if somebody had done something that was a little off color, it might be in the book or more than (laughs) likely it's in the book. Yeah. But he just knew so much about everything that went on on that island for the last, well, almost 300 years. Because I went to with him one time. I picked him up. He didn't want to drive down to the boat school in Eastport. And he knew I was going. So we rode down together. That was an education all the way down because it was like he lived on the coast in the Revolutionary War. He told you, told me about the Marguerite, which I knew a little bit about, but it was almost like he was there. He was a great storyteller, you know? Well, he's quite so, smart. And I, I think he, you know, he had a very good long memory too, because uh, like you said, he'd do research, but then he knew what he had read and, and was able to, tell you the story again right it was unbelievable you know right up till you know probably the time he passed away he was doing research i was in his kitchen about two weeks ago and we were discussing some of the research we had done on some vessel and i can't i'm sorry i can't remember which vessel it was but it was a vessel that you would have thought that it, it was built on the island in Eden and it was owned by a Nichols or involved in Nichols. And of course, most people would think, well, that's got to come out of Searsport. Well, no, it came out of, of uh, M- Mount Desert Island and he knew the family and why it got named Nichols. He knew all the background of that family. He had chased it down somehow 
some way he had it all. And he was great at that, you know, and it's fortunate that, you know, he, like a lot of us, a a lot of what we've done is documented. It's actually printed, you know, so if you need to go look for that stuff, you can find it, Uh you know. I know he gave a lot of his stuff to the Southwest Harbor Library. Yeah, they got a lot. Right. And, you know, he did a lot for us at the Penobscot Marine Museum. It's unbelievable. When we held a, uh, a lecture with him involved, it was standing room only. People came from all over to hear Ralph Stanley. I was part of a discussion one time about the future of uh boat building in Maine and the discussion came up about wooden boat building, whether it was a, a dying art or not. And um, I suggested that, well, take a look at all the strip plank boat building that's going on now seems to be increasing. I don't think that wood is dead. And I asked Ralph if he had ever considered building a, a wood, a strip plank boat. And he quickly says, no, <laughs> and I says, well, uh, why, why wouldn't you want to do that? And he says, too many pieces. <laughs> Typical well, he's answer. probably right. Yeah. Oh, yeah, he is. If you count the pieces, yes. You know, if you look, he was an era that is going to be hard to replace. I mean, you know, you've got the likes of, you know, in the boat building world, especially the wooden boat world, you got his son, Richard, you've got Peter Buxton down in Sunset in Stonington, and you've got Peter Cass down in South Bristol, John's Bay Boat Company. And, you know, they're the three that really have carried on the tradition of wooden, of wooden boats. You know, there's other people who do a lot of repair work, uh, you know, new wooden boat construction. You probably look at Brooklyn Boat Yard, too, but that's all coal molded. Yep. You know, uh, one that uh, another one that will do it is uh, Rockport Marine and Rockport. They will do wooden boat construction, mostly sail. But, you know, I don't think that the wooden boat world, you know, yes, it's a lot smaller than it was 50 years ago. But I don't think it'll go away. Because if you want to add 10 years to your fishing life, you fish on a wooden boat. Right. You know, and it's amazing how many of wooden boats are still sailing in uh, Stonington. How many of them are Peter Cass boats? I wonder if the uh, the construction methods are still going to remain the same. We're back to strip plank versus uh, steam bent. I think the steam bent will stay going. Yeah. You know, it, it, you know, Peter, uh, Peter Cass does that. Richard Stanley does that. So doesn't Peter Buxton. They're all, you know, steam bent frames, you know, yeah. and, but, you know, you look at Ralph even more because he did both power, he did sail, you know, and especially for the friendship sloops, how many friendship sloops are still alive because of Ralph? Oh yeah. You know <laughs> how many, I don't know how many he rebuilt and how many he built, Yeah. but there was an era there where he, that was, that was who you went to. You went to Ralph Stanley and he became an authority on the friendship sloop without question. Yeah. You know, I don't know how many are still in Southwest Harbor, but there must be a number of them, wooden ones. Hmm. I wonder who's keeping a, track of that. <laughs> yeah, 
I mean, it's fortunate that the uh, Friendship Sloop Society keeps, keeps publishing their uh, booklet because every year in the back of that is a list of all the Friendship Sloops and it tells you who the builders are, which is a big help because I think it's hard to get the early ones because I think they are kind of like the small lobster boats. A lot of times they don't get the recognition. Yeah. You know, and I think Ralph gave, you know, the Friendship Sloop an additional life expectancy. You know, there's a lot of people even today still would like to have a Friendship Sloop. Now, some of them, of course, would like it in glass. And of course, you know, Ralph helped in the glass world because he's the one that helped Jarvis Newman fix the, <laughs> the old wrecks that he got, you know, so that they could make a mold off of them. Mm -hmm. I think he loved to teach people. He was always down to the boat school. And I remember one year going down when he was uh, the graduation speaker, but he was also being honored at the same time. Huh. And look at the awards that man won. Oh, man. You know, he got one from the from uh, what was it? The U.S. government. The National a, Endowment for the Arts. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, they don't hand them things out to just anybody. <laughs> no. You, you know, be pretty special. Yeah. And, and, and it, what's interesting, it's about art. You know, it's the art of the wooden boat. I mean, you know. Yeah. And then I know the uh, the Friendship Slew people gave him an award. Yeah. You know, he was always, you know, it's just interesting what the, the life he had. And he didn't have an easy time, I don't think, because when he was a kid or, you know, a young man, he had TB. Oh, I didn't tuberculosis. Know and he spent a time in the, you know, trying to rehabilitate. And that's why he could not be in the shop when this, there was fiberglass being laid down. He huh. was long gone. You know, because he he was, you know, but despite all of that, he had a nice long life. You know, yeah. of course, we all wanted it to last a lot, lot longer, maybe double. Ralph Stanley, National Treasure. Next, John gives us the latest report on what's going on with several of the main boat yards. So I've been to Belmont Boat, which is in Belmont. And they've got Zingara inside, which was a boat that was built by Brooklyn Boatyard. Oh, probably 20 years ago and designed by Stevens and Waring, who now have their office in Belfast. They own the boat. They bought it. And mm. what they're doing is they're actually putting it back or they redesigned the interior because the guy that owned it originally, he wanted to race it. And they wanted to have more creature comfort. So they bought the boat back so that they could actually do what they really wanted to do with the boat initially. <laughs> so you'll probably see her on the bay. She'll probably hail right out of uh, Belfast. Uh, they also had to do a little bit of repair on her port side where she had been hit in the Egamog and Reach Regatta. They had a, uh, an electric boat that they are starting to put together too. And I think it's called a Solar Sail 24. So it's fully solar powered, no backup systems at all. Yet it's sail, but it's also got uh, it, it's also got power. I haven't seen the boat. I think they were making parts for it here and there, and then sending it to the customer who I believe is in Florida. But they have a lot of work to do this winter. Their paint bay is always going full full bore. 
you know, and they've got a number of other projects inside because they haul a lot of boats. So, and they rented another 5,000 square feet of storage space and it wasn't full last I knew, but so if somebody's looking for storage right now, they could probably slide you in if they haven't filled it. Then I was at Gamage Shipyard, which is in South Bristol, and they have infused two Mitchell Cove 32 hulls, one for themselves and one for the owners of the moles, who is Patrick Feeney, Feeney's Boat Shop down in Cutler. And they're going to finish her out as a sport fishing boat. And then they're going to lay up, and I believe it's 30 Rangely 17s. These are small, you know, uh, rowing boats. And uh, the customer has asked for 30 of them so that they can use them on uh, Sebago Lake. Yeah, the Rangely's are 17 feet and they're a Rangely Lake boat, it's called. It's interesting because the Gamage ad was sold. In fact, one of the guys I mentioned earlier, John Vinyl, uh, Mike Tatro is another one, and there's a lady that's involved in it. And they were basically employees that the owner decided to sell to because he didn't really want to own a boatyard. And he didn't do much with the boatyard except own the yard. They have a Holland 32 there that they're going to finish off at some point. They finished off one of them last year. They think it would be a good fishing boat, and I think he meant sport fishing boat. And they usually power them with a uh, Yanmar. Usually a 370 horsepower Yanmar. I've been at Glen Holland shop. He's got a 38 in the corner that's almost done and ready to go to York. And the owner is going to finish that out. She's got a basic interior in her, but that's what the owner wanted to do. He wanted to do his own interior. He's got a 32 that they've just started on. She's going to be a finished boat. She's going to Long Island, New York. Then they've got a 30, another 38. And that is going to go to San Diego. That is, a, uh, I think, a full-fledged boat. They've also had a number of 14s that they have finished. I think he said that they shipped out six or eight of them this summer, and they still have eight more to go. It's interesting how certain models sell at certain times. And there's been a big run on the 14s. Is it a skiff like a Newman 12? Sort of, sort of thing. No, no, it's a little wide. It's a lot wider. It's more of a powerboat, uh-huh. so they can put upwards of a forty horsepower engine on this thing. Ah, and they're real seaworthy. And the uh, boat that went out this summer was actually a kit boat that went over to Front Street, a thirty footer. They cut two feet off the transom of the thirty two, and Front Street finished it out as an outboard boat. And that went really, really well. I know my stepson actually did most of the mechanical work on her. And uh, I think she got in the mid-30s for speed. So Glenn's pretty pretty busy. He's probably got another year of work in front of him, but he probably can slide some other things in. And then I went into Kittery Point Yacht Yard, which is actually in Elliott. Uh, There's two yards. There's one in Kittery Point and one at. Elliot, which was the old George Patton yard, uh, Patton's yacht yard. And uh, this has become uh, kind of Holland Central uh, Southern or whatever you want to call it, because they've got three 32s in there. Two of them are going to get refurbished. One, extensive refurbishing, not so much down below, but the boat's going to get painted top to bottom. They've raised the deck, basically the platform, because they wanted to put a little bit of a, more of a rake in it so that it had, because it didn't have scuppers or anything. So basically they're fixing that up 
and she is actually a harpoon boat. And all of these actual boats that they've got there, the 32s are harpoon boats for tuna. They also have a big 38 outside that's a harpoon boat that they redid about two or three years ago. The one that was interesting that they did have was a guy, an owner on his own, decided to build a Doug Highland. And I don't remember how big she is. She might be about 28 feet. No, 32. And she's got a torpedo stern. And this guy built the boat. It's really nicely done. I mean, you know, if it's his first job, he did a very good job. Right now, it just needs to be fared up. But what she is in there for is to have a, an engine put in her. And it's a small engine. It's a 4LV Yanmar with an AquaDrive unit. And they were hooking that up. And then the owner was going to finish uh, putting the cabin top house on her. And then she was going to go in the water uh, at the end of the uh, end of the se- winter season. The one that was interesting is, is that they do a lot of paint jobs there and they did a correct craft. Do you any, any of you remember the correct crafts? I remember the name, but I never remembered much about the boat. They were actually built in World War II. Then they discontinued it. And then somebody in the 70s started to rebuild, you know, remake them. And it's now kind of a cult following, kind of like maybe a Corson, because there's a lot of Corsons on this coast. But anyways, they repainted her top to bottom. And then there was a big job on a Weber's Cove 22. And that boat had been owned by a family for 20 years, and it had basically languished. It hadn't been kept up the way it should have. And they basically went through her stem to stern. Unfortunately, the original owner had passed away, but his son took the boat over. And, you know, it's his pride and joy because it's a good memory of his father. We go to Rockport Marine. They've got Kukla in there, which is a schooner, big schooner. She's probably around 45 feet or 50 feet. And she is actually being totally uh, redone interior, exterior for an owner. And then they got a boat that we think was built in Southwest Harbor, but we're not sure. I think I've got it somewhere in my records called Hurricane. And many of you might remember, I've written her up previously because she ran from Portsmouth, New Hampshire, out to Star Island, which is one of the islands of the uh, Isla Shoals group. And they were working for the uh, University of New Hampshire, I believe, running people out there. But she was also a Hurricane Island Outward Bound School, and she was built in 1967. Well, she's been purchased by a, 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 for a, as a pleasure boat, and she is being totally redone. They've done some replanking, not much, but uh, maybe, you know, seven or eight strakes on each side. And then they've just put in a new interior in her and that sort of thing. But there's always interesting boats at Rockport Marine in Rockport. And then Wilbur Yachts, they've got a 38 in the front of the uh, shop called Papagayo, and she's getting a new engine. She's been an extensive rebuild, stem to stern, basically. And this year, she's going to get new power, new fuel tanks, new genset, new water heater. And they put in a 24-volt starting system for the engine and kept the 12-volt house system, all new electronics. And they need to have her in the water sometime in the middle of March, which that could be a really nice time of the year in Maine, because the owner wants it for the 1st of April. (laughs) Of course he does. (laughs) You know, it might not be the best idea, but anyways. And then he's got 234s in there that he's working on. And most of that is just normal uh, 
uh, every year maintenance. But the big boat that's in there is the pilot boat. And she is getting some extensive work done to her, you know, just going over and doing normal uh, uh, annual maintenance. I think they're doing hatches on her and stuff like that, after door, things like that. That's about it on the coast. I know. And the other thing is I ended up on Beals Island and I interviewed Calvin Beal. But why I did that, I snuck over to Willis Beal's boat shop and Willis has got his the big model, which was supposed to be about 84 inches long, has shrunk now to 62, which is probably big enough. And Willis seemed to be happy that it had shrunk 20 inches because that's a big boat when you, you know, and it's, it's not going to be heavy because it's not solid, but he started already uh, lofting it and he's going to make a, uh, a uh, mold for it, you know, a jig for it and start building it. He may have already started that because there's one thing that Willis likes to do and that's be in his boat shop working on models. And then when I was with uh, Calvin, he has started building a model. And it was on one of his models. I think it's a 35-footer. He's got the hull done, which looked just like fiberglass, but it's not. She didn't have the deck on. So he took it to Florida with him, which he left a couple of days after uh, Thanksgiving. He Hopefully, he'll have it done when he returns in the spring. Thank you, John. If you are looking for an interesting job, the boatyards are hiring. Speaking of interesting jobs, we talked with Sheila Dassett of Stonington. As she says, she is the jack of all trades, and John has known her for quite a while and does the introduction. Well, Sheila Dassett uh, grew up in uh, Belfast. Uh, for most of her life, she, of course, started in Stonington and has now moved back to uh, Stonington to go fishing uh, her with her husband, Mike, on their boat called Saving Grace, which is a 32 Holland, which is her brother's company. And uh, of course, she is the director of the Down East Lobsterman Association and has done that for a number of years. I notice here, same topic related, different folks. The uh, Maine Lobstermen's Association has launched a uh, fundraising drive. They want to raise $10, $10 million to do whale research and for legal costs. And that's where it's headed. More information and more lawyers. Um, <laughs> story's not over by that's a long where the shot. Ten- Here's Sheila Dassett. We moved to Belfast in... 1960. Yeah. Yeah. So you, you went, did all your schooling in Belfast? Yeah, I started school. I was supposed to start down in Stonington, but I started in Belfast. I, I was kind of a, a jack of all trades and master of none. 1982, I was at the boat shop working for the family boat shop. But you also worked for our, the, the, the other uh, tugboat guy, Arthur Fournier, didn't you? I did, yes. <laughs> now, you don't have any Arthur stories, do you? An Arthur story? <laughs> well, let me see. <laughs> Arthur was, I, I can tell this one. Arthur was always looking for a wrench, you know, when he was in the, 
in the wheelhouse of the tug, you know, and that's when John Worth was the captain. And he was always saying, well, well, where is this wrench? Because everybody knows that Arthur was such a mild-mannered fellow, you know. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> so, so anyway, finally, he got his hands on a wrench and he threw it out the window, went overboard. And he said, well, there, I know where this wrench is now, don't I? <laughs> and that's kind of how it went. Yeah, we knew probably that wrench is still there. But now you worked for him for a long time, didn't you? Yeah. So you worked for him well into the 80s, almost the 90s, didn't you? Uh, when I see, I, well, I worked for him twice, actually. Uh-huh. I worked for him on Marshall Wharf in the 80s. Right. And... I was there when they did the turning of the Constitution. But I remember we had to put a bunch of, we had to glue a bunch of pennies on all of these invitational cards because his bid on that, turning the Constitution. So yeah, what year was that that he turned the Constitution? That was 1987, I believe. Right in that 86, 87 yeah. John Worth was the captain that did it. Right. I mean, Arthur yeah. didn't do that. I would have thought Arthur would have been right there front and center. I think he was there, but he, but John Worth was actually the captain. Huh. Okay. That. We, we should, yeah. we should explain what you mean by turning the constitution. Well, every year the, the constitution, of course, is a wooden ship that was built in 1797 in Boston. And every year, so that the sun doesn't destroy just one side, they flip her around. They take her outside Boston Harbor, turn her around, and give her a ride back. And I think it's the 4th of July, isn't it? Yes, it is. Yeah. That they do it every year. So when did you come back the second time? I went back in the year 2000. And that was yeah. in Belfast. And then it wasn't Penn Bay towboats. It was in uh, Portland tugboats. Okay. Even though it was Portland tugboats, our office is in Belfast mm -hmm. at the Belfast Center. And then you worked in Hamilton Marine a little bit. Ten years there. So when did you start working with Della? Which we have to explain is the Down East Lobstermen Association. That was 2006. I was working for Arthur at the time, and I had the offer to, to move over to Down East Lobstermen's Association. And it, it was a good fit for me, so I, I made the change. So, but were you hired to do this kind of secretarial type stuff? Or were you hired right to head the whole thing all the time? I started out... In 2004, as secretary treasurer. Right. And I did all of the clerical things. And uh, then in 2006, they asked if I would be the director. Mm -hmm. And I was honest. I said, why would you ask me to do that? You know, I, I, I had never really considered leadership. I was the, the, the numbers girl. Right. <laughs> in the office. Basically, they said, well, 
Down East Lobstermen's Association is fishermen. And where I'd worked at Hamilton Marine for 10 years, I knew most of them. And communications, excuse me, communications was my thing. Um, mm-hmm. I'd go to the meetings. They said, if you can go to the meetings, you speak for the fishermen and, and your legacy, our background, um, they all know you. And, and it, it was a good fit. Uh, I'd go to the meetings and most of the fishermen did know me. And even now they'll communicate with me because we're, we do all of the same things. We're on the boat. When we go back and forth, we wave to one another. They know it's us. We're in it. There's not a lot of people that could step into that job and do it and be as well received because it's not an easy job to do. No, it isn't. Because there's a lot of controversy. Yes. I mean, what, what, what's the major controversy over, you know, you've done it almost, what, 15 years? So what's the major yeah. controversy that, you know, you've had over these years? Is it what we're facing now with the right whales and the windmills? Well, at that time, it was, there was no discussion about windmills. This is kind of a new, right. a new it's project. A new yeah, but, but the whales have always been part of it. I have paperwork in my documents that that are testimonies and letters that that we did concerning the whale rules going way back to 2007 anyway. Right. And uh, so tell us about tell us about the evolution of the whale problem. I mean, they're always looking to get more by, you know, but from an outsider's view. Right. You know, like now they're trying to close off whole areas, which to me doesn't make sense because I think on this show we've actually discussed it. And it would be smart just to close off the area while the whales move through. But that's not what they did. They closed down what? A thousand square miles? Yeah. And years ago, they did have closures. If, you know, they had sighted planes and if they saw the whales they would say they called it dam zones and i'm not good at acronyms but but basically if if whales were spotted they close that area and everybody would just move their gear and not fish in that area until you know it had passed through and then they did away with those but it's, it's been an ongoing thing over the years. We've had to adjust and modify our gear. And we have to add quick links to the rope. And then this past year, we had to add purple purple rope to the, to the end buoys. Right. And it's, yeah, it's just ongoing. Well, the idea of the purple rope is every, every state has a color. Mm-hmm. And if they, you know, find an entangled whale with purple rope on the buoy, then they're going to say, well, that was a main, a main entanglement. Okay. And, and to this date, there haven't been any main entanglements with purple rope. So, so is why are they closing the area one? Right. So what do the Canadians do? Well, they got pushed into this, you know, for a long time. They they weren't doing much of anything, but now right. they are. And uh, 
in all honesty, I'm not real clear on what they're, uh, they are observing it there, but I'm not quite sure what they're, what, what they're, they're doing. Are they yeah. using purple rope? No. <laughs> 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 so, uh, today, what's, you know, so what do they, what does it look like for this, you know, thousand square mile closure? Does it look like it's going to stand or because there was one judge that kind of threw it out, right? Yes. Is that still standing right now? No. It, as fast as it was uh, blocked and they and it stayed open, all of the all of the people that were in favor of saving whales, you know, got right onto the situation and made an appeal. So now it's closed. So did he reverse his decision or did it come from somewhere else? It came from another judge. So is the fight still going on? Yes. And yes, it is. So what's the next what's the next battle? It's actually an ongoing because it's supposed to be a 10 year uh, by by 2030. We're supposed to have all all of this settled. <laughs> Yeah, but believe it or not, there's there's ongoing meetings. We right. have joined Down East Lobstermen's Association has actually uh, worked with Maine Lobstermen's Association with the Legal Defense Fund, and it's an ongoing uh, legal defense lawyers you, working. Yeah, do you work with New Hampshire and Massachusetts? Well, we've signed letters together. So, yeah. Right. Yes. So, the last two letters that were sent were signed by all of the associations joining right. together like this. So, but now Connecticut, Rhode Island, they wouldn't be affected at all, would they? It's just no. Massachusetts, just Massachusetts, New Hampshire, and Maine? Yeah. Primarily, yeah. Right. Mm -hmm. Okay. So, what about the windmill? issue where does that stand that is also ongoing meetings uh, i'm part of the governor's energy office and mm -hmm. the chair of it is is uh, deputy commissioner meredith mendelson mm -hmm. and we do have meetings the associations are part of it we have the tuna coalition as part of it uh it's and we get together well, there's Zoom meetings, but right. we speak for the fishermen in these meetings, and we have speakers that maybe are involved with the Charles survey saying, you know, what's what it's going to affect. We've had um, a lot of a lot of testimony already from the wildlife, the fisheries concerning the, the seabirds. It is, it's an ongoing thing, and I don't see it changing too much right now. There's, again, another 10-year moratorium on this. And at this point, it's supposed to be just the Monhegan area. That's the research site. Right. Yeah. So when did, is that supposed to go in? What is off Monhegan? Or is that 10 years out? This one here is it, it's in the process. Right now they're they're testing the 
anchors, the chains, the cables, how they're going to bury the cables. And it's, it's an ongoing research. I don't see it happening, you know, as soon as this year or anything like that. Right. So, you know, you just talked about a couple of the things that you go through meeting wise. How many meetings do you have to do a week? Because <laughs> <laughs> now you have to go to Augusta, right? To deal with some of them. Well, we were, we were going to Augusta, but since the COVID, we've been doing all Zoom meetings. When we were traveling to Augusta, it might have been one meeting a month, uh, depending right. on what it is. But, but that's just to Augusta, but you have other meetings during the month too, don't you? Yes. You got your regular Della meeting. Is that, you still hosting them? We haven't had any for a while uh, because of this COVID. Right. But we stay in touch. Mm-hmm. But we have, gosh, there's windmill meetings. There's, uh, when I go down through my schedule, I could probably be in a meeting every day concerning right. aquaculture, mm-hmm. uh, the wind, the whales, uh, safety meetings. Uh, I, I get a lot of requests from the University of Maine. They do a lot of research with, uh, right now they're on safety. Uh, the last, one of the last projects they had was with life jackets, PFDs, and they were testing, uh, wanting fishermen to test different life jackets to see what was, you know, more comfortable that they'd be more apt to wear and keep them safe. Well, did they come up with one? Good question. <laughs> Haven't seen the report? <laughs> I say that because they were in the middle of doing all that, and then then the pandemic hit. So, but I will say that we do when we did wear the jackets. Mm-hmm. Oh, it was a stormy seas one that you, you'd pull the little C, the CO two cartridge, and it would inflate. Right. Yeah, and that's the most comfortable one. And um, he had one given to him by Stormy Seas as a demonstrator. Mm-hmm. And even when you're not pulling the CO2 cartridge, you can put air in the in the collar in the back of it. And it's like a little pillow. Right. So mm-hmm. even if you fall overboard with that inflated, it'll hold you up. Right. So what have they are they still doing any research now or are they kind of holding off since COVID hit? I think they've been holding off. So uh, let's change subjects a little bit. Uh, You did say you work for your brother. And for people who don't know, that's Glenn Holland of Holland's Boat Shop. So you said you started in the boat shop when? 1982. 82? Yeah. And and what did you you get to do? I know at the end you could do anything. (laughs) Right? Yeah. Yeah. My brother and I... It's a typical sibling. It was a typical sibling relationship. And I needed a job at the time because uh, the poultry plants were closing and the trucks that we had that delivered grain to the farms, uh, that was all ending. So my brother said, if you think you can keep up in the shop, (laughs) go for it. Right. And, you know, I had to. At that point, with him saying that, I had to prove myself. Right. You're Norwegian. Um, yes. Right? 
you can always tell a Norwegian, you just can't tell us much. That's right. Yeah, and we're pretty stubborn. Yep. So so what was the first boat you worked on? Did- yeah, I worked on the 32s. I was in the layup shop or the laminating shop yeah. with, with Willie Larrabee. Now, you've been fishing out of a number of boats. I know you had an Adrian Beal. Did you have a vinyl? You had a vinyl. We had an Osmond Beal. Yeah, Osmond Beal, which vinyl was his father. Yeah. So, so you had so you had an Osmond boat and you had an Adrian, right? Yes. Yeah. And now you have. <laughs> now I have a Holland Thirty Two. That part of it is is a retro to the Red Baron. Yeah, you got her deck right. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. We have the deck, and the story behind that was that Glenn was going to take the deck off of the Baron and put a different one on. Mm-hmm. So he said, I just can't see scrapping that deck. So, mm-hmm. so I took the deck, Mike and I took the deck and he said, well, put a different hull underneath of it. So that's what we did. We built a, a, diff- a new hull and right. referred the deck of the Red Baron. Mm-hmm. And we named her Saving Grace. Right. And you, you- Powered it with gas, but you've never raced it. No, no. <laughs> now, did you ever get, do any races with the Baron? I was on it with Dad once or twice. Right. But that was about it. I was I was more the um, in the eighties, especially the early eighties. All of the all of the women in the family carried the coolers and the sandwiches, and and we were the <laughs> cheering club. <laughs> <laughs> yeah and and once in a while we'd get to put the life jacket on and go on the on the race with them i've got right. some pictures of that and uh i went on it once or twice and i said that's enough for me <laughs> because the g-force was unbelievable oh yeah now, do you know what the speed was when you were on it was it over 50 uh Top speed was 57.8 miles per hour. Right. Which was done, what, I think we did that in Searsport? Yes, yeah. Was, was, was that without the top? That was when they when uh, he came in with no the, the top, we had no windshield. Well, let's put it this way. He had a, what, a six-inch windshield? Yeah. <laughs> Just enough, yeah. 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 I remember him bringing that to the shop. I was sworn to secrecy because <laughs> I unloaded it from Wayne Canning's shop. <laughs> yeah, you were there. I remember. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that was quite a story, too. They've got that uh, Virginia Thorndike has captured all that on a video. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And uh, I don't yeah, know. That was. Well, it was always interesting because that was the year that Stevie Johnson came with uh, Crowley 36 with a thousand horsepower Rolls Royce engine. Yes. Yeah, and that was that was a great race because there wasn't much difference between the two boats. And you've heard the story that goes with that race, right? Yeah, well, the bilge was full of water. No. Well, yes, it was. <laughs> <laughs> but. Uh, we had signed up 
Mike and I had signed up the wooden boat, Anna Marie, the Osmond 32 at that right. rate. And I can't remember. You might remember what, what gear they had to change. There was something uh, mechanically. I was involved more with the wooden boat. But, but anyway, uh, we were signed up for the wooden boat race. And, and next thing you know, Mike hopped onto the Baron with Glenn to help him change the part. And dad was in the, we put him in the Anna Marie in the wooden boat race. <laughs> <laughs> so, so they thought it was Mike running the Anna Marie in the wooden boat race, but it was actually my father. Right. And the story behind it is he went so slow with that boat in that wooden boat race that one of the announcers said, is that boat in the race? <laughs> and the girls that were riding stern were pretending that they were paddling because right. the boat was going so slow. Yeah. And when he crossed the finish line, they had the Baron all ready to roll. And then dad hopped onto the Baron. <laughs> That's a little different. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It was fun. Well, the racing's always been fun. It's a, it's a show. I mean, and then I guess it's a better show if you know all of the internal workings. Because sometimes most people, they don't know those internal workings. No. You know, which is too bad. Sometimes maybe it's a good thing they don't know all the internal workings. I mean, there's been some times where, you know, you've been there when they've had problems with the Baron. Yes. Yeah, it wasn't all easy. That's for sure. No, how many engines did he cook? <laughs> oh boy! <laughs> so, are you you still got your traps in, or are you all out? We just brought in a load today. We've got about a hundred and thirty more to bring in. And how many loads is that? Three? No, two. Yeah, two loads. Two or three. Yeah. Are yeah. they? They're not too far away from the dock, are they? You know, you don't have to go too far out. No, we don't. Down here in Stonington, you can do a lot right around the islands. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So we brought in two loads today. And the winds of November, you know, have kept us from getting a lot of them in. As soon as we have a good day, all the boats are out and all the traps are coming in. Like today, it was very busy at the dock. Thank you, Sheila. During the winter... We like to talk about nautical books while sailing the couch by the wood stove. Mike, been reading lately? <laughs> I got a pile of books here. I've got another one uh, before we get into the pile of books. Um, thought this was pretty interesting because we ain't eating them this season. Woods Hole uh, scientists have found uh, the answer of where the shrimp have gone, they think. And it's kind of a climate-related um, idea. It turns out that one of the uh, uh, most efficient predators of our beautiful little tasty shrimp are long fin squid, which is a more southern species. Gets up here sometimes in the summer, but not in great numbers. Um, Woods Hole noticed that after the uh, shrimp collapsed in 2012, the overlap in the season of the uh, shrimp um, leaving after the winter and the uh, squid coming up in the spring was now overlapping big time and the squid were going nuts. And that was because they were eating so many shrimp. 
and the squid have continued to uh, multiply and prosper and the shrimp have not bounced back at all. And it's like I say, because the water is changing, the predation uh, cycle has changed for those shrimp, not for the good. Well, sounds like we should make a uh, some new squid recipes. <laughs> uh, good one, because those big those big shrimp, you know, jumbo shrimp, that's an oxymoron. Come on now, and they just ain't as tasty as as the uh, Gulf of Maine little. Uh, love them things. So anyway, I have been reading, and uh, there are two new series out of uh, novels based on the Royal Navy back in the uh, late 1700s, early 1800s period. Um, one is by an author named Chris Durbin, and these are the uh, Carlisle and Holbrook naval adventures. There are nine of them in the series. Um, quite good. Carlisle is captain. Holbrook was his lieutenant, and as the series goes on, uh, Holbrook comes along and makes a uh, captain himself and the books kind of alternate between the two different uh, heroes there and fairly well done. Um, they operate over here, uh, capture Lewisburg among other things. And, uh, you know, highly recommended the uh, Carlisle Holbrook Naval Adventure Series, Chris Durbin. There's another one that's brand new too, Philip K. Allen. His fella is called Alexander Clay. And if anything, I like him better than the other, uh, the Durban series. There are seven of those now. And uh, the thing that I like better about him is that some of his main characters are lower deck guys that uh, you get to know quite well. And uh, while we get a look into the lower deck on the other series, there is no main characters there. And, and this guy treats them quite well, especially a guy named o O'Malley. Uh, an Irish fellow who swears quite a bit, fecking with an E. Uh, been fecking a lot of things lately. So anyway, uh, caught on with me. And I uh, highly recommend the Philip K. Allen books. Um, another one I got right here, which is kind of interesting. It's called War at Sea, a shipwreck history from antiquity to the 20th century. And it's all about naval arche um, archaeology. James Delgado includes, among other things, uh, Maine Maritime went and dug up the uh, defense, um, a frigate from the uh, Massachusetts Navy, which was uh, lost in Castine in 1779 to the British. Now, that I was the Penobscot on, expedition. Uh, Penobscot expedition, right? It went ashore in all uh, oh, the other side of the bay there, and they they uh, it's on Sears dug Island. And, and, uh, it's on the east side of Sears Island. Captain Searles yeah. was the head diver on that project. Yeah, and again. Uh, Underwater archaeology is a tricky business. It's um, on the top of the land. Archaeology is a fairly exacting thing where you don't want to mess things up. You go very carefully. Now, underwater, things are way more confusing. Uh, <laughs> you know, did this drift over here? Was it brought by a tide or ice or, you know, did it? Uh, uh, and again, to excavate things underwater, um, way trickier than the land. It's quite interesting. War at sea. But here's a guy that we absolutely have to talk to. This book, I'm halfway through. It's just wonderful. It's called Go By Boat, Stories of a Main Island Doctor, Dr. Chuck Raddus. This is brand new, and I've heard him interviewed a couple of other times. Uh, this came out um, last summer, I believe. And uh, Chuck became um, island doctor in Casco Bay uh, 
Oh, peak should be long and uh, be another one there. I'll think of it in a minute. And um, had a, a very interesting practice. Told with some wit, you get to meet a bunch of uh, uh, characters. Let's put it that way. They're living out on main island. Some of them are easier to get along with than others. And uh, Chuck seems to be a pretty good doctor who, uh, despite the difficulty of his job and all the time he spends on ferries, um, uh, working out quite well at it, has the respect of the people he's treating. Um, the book is just wonderful to read. Go by boat. Dr. Chuck Raddus. Very highly recommended. John, have you read this one book? A ship no, is, what's that one? A Ship is Dying. Yeah. This guy I find remarkable. The author is just remarkable. Um, author's name again, Alan? Brian Brian Callison. Callison, yes. He's written about uh, two dozen naval thrillers. This one is uh, five or six in. It is a story of a uh, ship that hits in America. It's in the uh, North Sea in a Force 10 gale in the wintertime. And it hits a uh, half-sunk American barge. And the book lasts for 20 minutes. Um, like eight minutes before they hit the barge and then 12 after before everybody, uh, you know, it tells what happens to everybody and everything. Just so well done. Um, the guy can write. And his naval thrillers um, are especially twisty with their plots. You never know what's going to happen next. And a couple of them I finished and you put it down and you go, what just happened? You got to read a couple of big parts over again, figure out how, you know, he's re- very inventive. Brian Callison. I've been getting him on library loan. I've read about uh, six or eight of them now. And I'm glad to say I've got, uh, you know, quite a few left to enjoy. I mm-hmm. highly recommend it. Anything by him. Do you remember the Golden Globe races back in 1968? Did you follow that? Remember Donald uh, uh, Crowhurst? Yes, I just uh, got the book off the shelf the other day, A Voyage for Mad Men. Yeah. Um, trying to think who wrote it, but that's the story of that 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 whole race. Yeah. The, um, uh, and yes, Crowhurst was there, and uh, only one yeah, person you, finished, right? The Frenchman. No, an Englishman, Robin Knox Johnson. Okay, yeah, yeah. Yeah, a lot of better. them. One guy went around <laughs> the world one t- one and a half times. He never stopped. He got off Cape Horn and decided not to make a left and kept going straight across to Tahiti. Wasn't that the Frenchman? That could have been the Frenchman. The reason I bring it up was there's a girl that was at Kirsten is her name, and don't ask me to say her last name because it's it's a strange last name. She's German, but her parents lived and brought her up in South Africa. And she ended up in Thomaston a couple of years ago uh, on uh, Skip Novak's boat called Pelagic. And uh, what she was doing was running up into the Arctic and Antarctic and doing sails for him, uh, taking out National Geographic, whoever wanted to charter the boat. But then she got the idea of doing what has been resurrected as the Golden Globe, which is races from France to uh around the world and back nonstop, but it's cruising boats you can't have a boat after 1980 and it has to be a production boat they had to have done at least 10 model 10 uh uh boats out of that mold and last year she bought a boat and then went and got it and she got it up in the upper parts of canada and in november decided to 
<laughs> sail it out. Well, she got as far as Summerside, Prince Edward Island. And luckily she found a great place to do this, do a rebuild on the boat. And uh, so now she's left Summerside and I've got a, a thing and she is now sailed. She's south of Halifax and she's been in God knows what kind of conditions because it hasn't been very nice out there and it doesn't really mm -hmm. tell me. But I heard it was in, I can't remember, 10 or 15 foot seas and it was blowing 30. But she's very, very capable. And for those that want to follow her, you know, they could send in or call the radio station and we can get, hook, hook them up. To, uh, I don't know what they sent me because I've actually got her following and it's called Kirsten GGR. And it gives you where she is on the, uh, you know, on the chart headed to South Africa, mm. which is well, just a little sail, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> no um how many how many miles is it from say halifax to south africa it'd be at least a third of the way around the globe right so yeah yeah, yeah. so it's probably ten thousand miles right yeah five, well yeah seven yeah she should hit warmer weather in another day or two right and that will about end another boat talk thanks for supporting weru Stay tuned for Main Challenge coming up next at 5, and then another chapter of Tough Island at 5.30. I should buy the boat and I should buy the sail, sir. I should buy the pitch the fish and take some home to lie, sir.